Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Pastor Doug. For those of you who do not know me, um, I, I, I don't want to give up too much of my time here, but I have to say something. If you were ever uh, not sure if God is still working or not, you, you're, you're just not 100% sure, I can tell you right now, those three young girls that were standing on the stage right here is proof that he still is. Um, I get to be with those girls every single week, uh, multiple times a week. Um, and I am watching God work in their lives in some pretty amazing ways, so um, I'm just blessed to see that. Um, it's a pleasure to be here to share God's Word. It's, it's through God's Word that, that lives are transformed. Um, and so it is a privilege to, to be here, to, to preach and proclaim God's Word to you guys. Um, before, before I start, I want to say this, this message today should challenge us. Um, this message should challenge us because it's, it's about something that um, just really... Um, is challenging. It is, it is challenging for us to deal with in terms of um, just wrapping our minds around this and it kind of goes against the grain of how we are made as people. And because it goes against that grain, it's just, it's real tough for us to, to kind of hear and wrestle with these, with these things, but it's good, okay? So Chris already gave you a little piece, but uh, we're going to do a show of hands. Who here would say that this statement is true of you? You really enjoy, rejoice in, easily accept find immense purpose in and just plain love, pain and suffering in your life. <laughs> okay. Show of hands, no one higher. As a general rule, people hate pain and suffering. If you really think about it, if you really think about it, most of our time, our energy, our effort is spent trying to remove suffering from our lives, trying to get rid of it. We work so that we can provide food and shelter and clothing for ourselves and our families because we want to avoid the pain and suffering of hunger and cold and insecurity. We diet and exercise and we think about our health and our sleep and what we're doing with our bodies because we want to avoid the pain and suffering of getting sick, facing disease, feeling pain, eventually death. We're trying to avoid that. We even set up buffers around us to deal with potential pain and suffering. We create savings accounts to set aside resources for potential emergency. We, we don't want to deal with suffering, so we set up these buffers just in case one may come. We can endure it without having to suffer. We do the same thing when it comes to relationships. We, we're careful who we share with, what, what we share about ourselves, who we let into our lives. We limit the closeness that we have with others because as we become close to others, we open up ourselves to the possibility of being hurt. And we don't like that. It's one of the most basic instincts of, of mankind to do everything in our power to avoid pain, avoid suffering in our lives and the lives of others we love. And, and let me tell you, that's okay. I'm not gonna say that's bad. It's okay if you don't want to suffer. It's not a bad thing to not want to suffer. Suffering sucks, okay? That could be the tagline. Suffering sucks, okay? But, but, church, we need to understand something. Re regardless of our attempts, your attempts, my attempts to remove suffering, the buffers you put in place, the walls you build up around yourself with others, the safeguards you set up to limit the depth and scope of suffering, you are going to suffer. Just true. You are going to face suffering in your lives. Suffering and pain are inescapable realities of this life. 
And the reason why that's true, the reason why this is the case, is as absolutely as simple as it gets, okay? One word answer tells us the reason why suffering will and must exist in this life, and that word is taxes. Just kidding. Sin. Okay? Sin. The root cause of, of suffering is sin. In the garden, there was no pain. There was no suffering, no death, because there was no sin. That's how it works. Once sin entered in, suffering became the way of the world. And since that first sin, what people have done is instead of doing everything in their power, what people have been doing is they've been doing everything in their power to remove the effects of sin in their life, the effects of sin in their life, namely pain and suffering. Instead of looking for ways in which to deal with the cause of pain and suffering in our lives, which is sin. So for our purposes today, jumping into our passage, the problem is actually very clear. Suffering exists in this life because of sin. But the question remains, knowing that suffering exists in this life because of sin and the effects of sin, how then do we as believers suffer well? And that's the title of our message today, How to Suffer Well. How do we go about suffering in our lives in a way that gives honor and glory to the Lord when we endure suffering? Before we dive into our text, let me pray. Would you guys would pray with me? Father, in your goodness, you created us. In your divine love, you gave us life and you, you breathed your very breath into it, just a pile of dust. Out of your faithfulness, you, you provide for us in joy. You walked with us. In your kindness, you, you cared for us. And Lord, in return, we have only rebelled against you. We've all turned our backs on your goodness and your love and your kindness and your faithfulness towards us. And as a result of our rebellion, our sin against you, we must now endure the pain and suffering caused by our sin. And yet, Lord, we, we stand in awe of you as we know that in Jesus you have made an end of all sin. In Christ, you have abolished the ultimate effect of sin for those who would turn from their sin, call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, and place their hope and trust in him. In Jesus, we are no longer in need of fear, no longer fear separation from you. You are near to us even now, indwelling our hearts, filling this place with your presence. And we know, Lord, that when you return in glory, all sin and all of its effects will be abolished forever. No longer will there be any pain, any suffering. There will be no more tears, but the ones that fall from our eyes as we stand in awe of you. And so, Lord, we ask for your help to know how to endure the effects of sin that remain. We need your help to know how to understand how, to, uh, how you use sin, how you use suffering in our lives, how to stay steadfast and immovable as, you, as we endure it, and how to always give you praise in the midst of it. So, Lord, teach us now through your word, how we should suffer well. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. Uh, it's beginning in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12. Um, here at TRCC, we use the NASB Bible. If you have a different version, that's totally fine. Um, if you want to be in the same version, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to take one of those home as our gift to you. 
Let's see what God has for us today. Uh, Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Paul says this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I want to briefly remind you of the circumstance that Paul is in, this letter is written in, as he writes these words. So if you remember, this this church in Philippi was um, started when Paul, on his first missionary journey, went and just converted two households. That's how this, this whole thing started, but just two households, a church was started up. Paul loved this church. This church supported Paul through, through all of his missionary journeys. As he went into Macedonia, as he went into Achaia, he, he calls this church partners with him in the gospel. They support him his whole life. This letter is written 10 years after uh, he started this church, and this church is still following up with Paul, checking in, seeing how he's doing. Paul has made it into Europe now, into, into Rome And he is now in prison because of the preaching of the gospel. He writes this letter to his beloved church who supported him through his whole life to encourage them to tell them that even though he is in chains for the gospel, that it's God's will, it's God's plan, and it's being used for God's glory. So Paul says to the church in Philippi that they should rejoice with him as he rejoices. That's a big picture what this is about. And in this particular portion of this, he use, of this passage, he uses his life as an example of how he's suffering and encourages and challenges the, the Philippians in this church to rejoice. So I want to jump into to verses 12 and 13 just right away. Um, we got two major themes in this, in this section that I got. So I want to go quickly through uh, chapter, uh, verses 12 and 13, and I'm just going to give you bullet points. So if you guys, wanna, if you guys are note takers, be prepared because this is going to go very, very fast, okay? So uh, verses 12 and 13, this is what's going on. Let me read these verses again. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, rapid fire. What are these verses telling us is going on? There are a few things I want to point out. Number one, your doing is good. Okay? Your obedience and your doing is good. Paul encourages the church in their obedience. He tells them that their continued obedience is a positive thing. Our obedience to God is good. Our doing is good. That's the first thing. Second thing, Paul says, keep doing what you're doing. 
Paul tells the church, don't, not just your obedience is good, but continue in that obedience. Our obedience is not something that's just a one-time act. It is an ongoing activity, okay? We don't just obey Christ once. It's an ongoing activity. So our doing is good. Continue to do what is good. And number three, in your doing, he says, do better. Paul tells those in the church that they should continue to obey. And then he says, do it much more. Or in other words, excel still more in your obedience. It's not enough just to obey once. You've got to continue to obey and excel still more in your obedience to Christ. Then there's this other idea where he says, do, do better, continue to do better together. That's number four. Paul is not just speaking to individuals here in this context. He's speaking to the community of believers. It's true, yes, our individual life should reflect that of personal obedience, but uh, as believers, as a body of believers, a church should be progressing along the path of obedience. Excelling in obedience works best in community, not in isolation. Obedience works best in community, not in isolation. So he says, yes, you're doing good. Continue to do good. Do better. Do better together. But then he also says, do better alone. Okay, that's not confusing, I hope. Paul challenges them not to just do better in community, but tells them to do so in his absence. Okay, what he's saying is when the authority figure of himself is removed, continue to obey. Okay, we have all done this. We have all done this. Doing something different when your boss is in your office, when your teacher is hovering over your desk. When your pastor sees you at Target, and yes, we do see you at Target, okay? Paul is saying that your character and your obedience should not just be present when an authority figure is there to keep you accountable, but should be done even in the absence of that authority figure. What does your life look like when no one else is watching? Right? That's the real proof of obedience. I always think of this quote. I always think of this when I hear this. It's this, this quote by a guy named... Um, H. Jackson Brown, Jr. He says, our character is what we do when no one else is looking. Right? So we need to do better alone when an authority figure is not there. Next, we need to do better humbly. Humbly. Paul is saying that as, as you do, you should do so with humility. The phrase uh, with fear and trembling is an idiom. It's, this, it's meant to convey this attitude, this posture as a believer of reverence, respect, Humility and submission to God. Okay? So we better, we need to do and be obedient humbly. Next one, number seven here. Your doing is the work of God. Paul says obey. Yes, he says obey. He says do. But then he reminds us of a profound point, verse 13. He said, God is the one who is at work in you. In your doing, don't take credit. In your doing, don't become proud or puffed up. In your obedience, in your doing, recognize that it is God who is doing through you throughout the whole process. God is the one that starts you. He's the one that saves you. He makes you new. He gives you the spirit which enlightens our hearts and prompts us to obey. Then he provides the ability for us to obey, the desire to obey, and the strength to do it the whole way through. So our doing is the work of God. Our doing is also the will of God. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, 
The sovereign God of the universe has ordained it according to his will. Your actions are known and your willing is done, your doing is first willed by the Almighty God. And lastly, your doing, your obedience is for God, the one who has done for you. The last part of verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All of your obedience and doing and excelling is caused by God and is for God. For his honor, for his glory, for his praise. What God gives to you to do, he gives you to do for him. It's all for his glory. Okay? So to recap, now they're all up there so you can write them down. Recap, your doing is good. Keep doing what you're doing. In your doing, do better. Do better together as a community. Do better when no one else is looking. Do better alone. Do better humbly. Because your doing is the will and the work of God. And your doing is for the glory of God because of what God has done for you. Okay? So hopefully two things are emerging for you. One, what does this have to do with suffering? Okay? We'll get there in a second. And number two, there is this curious phrase in verses, uh, verse 12 and 13 um, that is quite tricky and I want to talk about it. And that phrase is this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You guys see that in there? Is that problematic to anybody else? This is a tricky phrase and I want to talk about it for just a second. At first glance, this, this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it appears problematic, okay? Because it's easy to read this verse as saying that we have a role in bringing about our salvation in ourselves. You could read it that way, okay? And that goes directly against Scripture, directly against explicit Scripture that says that our salvation is 100% a work and gift of God apart from our works, okay? That's explicit in Scripture. But I don't want to take long here, but the phrase work out does not mean bring about or cause to be. It is not you causing your salvation or bringing about salvation. It does not mean that you, by your, your effort or your obedience, effectually bring about salvation in yourself. That's not what this means. Nor does it mean that God has initiated your salvation and now you by your obedience, must work to complete it, to bring it to its fullness. That's not what this means either. Nor does it mean that you should be fearful of losing your salvation by your actions, taking the, the word work out to mean your actions, then assure yourself of being saved. N none of those things are what this passage is really talking about. Okay? This term, work out, Okay, this idea of working out your salvation is really synonymous in this passage, in this context, with the word obey. Okay? It's really what it says. Now, you can kind of see it in the structure. Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, to which you should then expect continue to obey. But he doesn't say that. He says, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's really synonymous with this word obey. Okay? So we obey, and in so doing, we produce good works, and they're in line with our salvation. That's really what this is saying. So here's the question. Why does Paul say this phrase this way? Why does he put it this way? And I, I think this is actually a good thing for us to stick on for a second. 
There's, there's two tendencies that we can get into as believers that Paul is countering here by stating this passage this way. First one, if we think that God is the one that does all the work, then we can be tempted that we don't have to do anything, okay? We can be tempted to assume that we just have to sit back once we're saved and do nothing. Do absolutely nothing. And that would be wrong. We must obey not in order to obtain salvation, but as an overflow of our salvation. As an outflowing of what God has done for us, we should obey. The second one is if we think that in our obedience, we're actually bringing about salvation in our lives or causing salvation to be fulfilled or completed in our lives, then we falsely assume or tempted to assume that we don't need God, that he's irrelevant. But it's because God has worked in us in salvation that motivates us to work, okay? So these two things must be held in balance. John Murray, a a theologian from a long time ago, is probably stated this the best possible way he could say it. So listen to this quote from John Murray, and this will clarify for you. It says, God's working in us is not suspend because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and now we do our part, so that the conjunction and coordination both produced the required result. God works and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. So what does this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, really mean? It really means this. Live out your salvation in reverence, humility, and submission to God whom caused, who caused it. That's what it means. Or another way of saying it, with awe and respect, with fear and trembling, with awe and respect, do good works of obedience in the reality that your salvation was created, caused, and completed by God. Okay? So it's an encouragement to view your salvation in a way where you continue to obey, but God gets all the glory. That's what's going on. Got it? You all understand now? Okay, great. Now to question number two. What does this have to do with suffering? Right? What does this have to do with suffering? There's two main themes in these verses, verses, obedience and suffering. And I think what's going on in Paul's mind, these are linked. These are linked. Why, why would I say that? You see, where Paul is currently... As he's writing, he's in a place of suffering because of his obedience, okay? He's in a place of suffering because of his obedience. It was because of Paul's obedience uh, to, to his call on Paul's life to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles that Paul finds himself in chains at this very moment. In the last two verses of this passage, he actually talks about his suffering and links these two things together. And so that leads us to, to our, our main point. The first thing we're going to talk about in suffering, which is this, what is our share in suffering? What is our share in suffering? What is the Christian's participation in suffering look like? All right? what are the, what's the Christian's participation in suffering look like? There's a few ways that we can look at this. First, we could believe that as Christians, we don't share in the effects of sin in suffering here in this life, okay? Or that as Christians, we should not suffer. We could think of it that way. 
This is actually the fundamental principle behind the prosperity gospel. Okay? This is the fundamental principle. It's that God's desire for you is that you should, you should never suffer in any way, and then he seeks for you to be health, healthy, happy, rich, and prosperous. Okay? That is the prosperity gospel, that you should never suffer and that suffering does not exist in the life of a believer. Okay? It's clearly not the case biblically. I don't even need to get into it, I don't feel like. For one, you could just look at the life of all of the apostles. That, that's all you need. And then go through church history from there and you'll see that that's not the case. Okay? So it's not that we don't share in sufferings. We, we are going to share in sufferings. We are going to. That's true. We will suffer in a similar fashion, right, as everybody else. Another option is, is somewhat similar, but I, I want to nuance it a little bit more. It's maybe that, yes, we will suffer, but that we should not feel the effects the same way as everybody else, okay, in suffering. This is kind of the, the fundamental principle behind heavy healing movements, okay, that are out there in Christianity. This, these movements that emphasize healing where they accept that suffering is a part of life, in, in the believer's life, but then they assume that one way or another, God's ultimate plan, his ultimate desire, is to remove that suffering from you. Then it's attributed as a lack of faith on our part that God is not healing us, because if that's his ultimate desire, then it must be us that's the problem. If that's his ultimate desire to remove suffering from us, then the problem is with us, we have a lack of faith, so God doesn't heal us, right? That is also obviously not the case biblically yes jesus healed people he took away sickness and pain and even death but this was not the ultimate plan or of jesus's healing and and caring for the sick in john 5 we have this really great story of jesus going to a pool that is popular among the sick okay it says that at this pool when jesus arrived there was a multitude of sick blind, lame, and withered people at the pool. In the midst of the multitude of sick that were there, Jesus healed one guy, just one. The removal of suffering from the people was not Jesus' ultimate plan of healing. Why did he not heal everybody there if that was his ultimate plan? He just healed one person. The purpose of his healing the sick and raising the dead was to validate his power, to validate his status, to validate his position as the one who is being sent by God for salvation in Israel. That's what the healing was about, not about his ultimate plan to remove all suffering. All right? So if the absence of suffering is not the plan and the removal of suffering is not the plan, what is the plan? How do we share in suffering? What are we to do as believers, set apart for God's glory? How are we to share in suffering? The answer, we are to share in suffering in the same way that everybody else shares in suffering in the world. We will face the same pain, the same sickness, the same hurt. When you get pricked by a needle in a doctor's office, you don't feel any less pain than your brothers and sisters who are not uh, believers. It's not, it just doesn't happen. We'll experience the same pain, the same sickness, the same hurt, the same suffering as everybody else. What makes the Christian's experience of suffering different from the world's is not in regard to the portion or the share of suffering. It's that we have provision and strength in the midst of suffering. Again, our portion and share may be the same, but our provision and strength are far different than the world's. Far different. 
we will suffer in this life. We will. But how we suffer should be different. It should be different. So then how do we suffer well? First, we need to understand that we will suffer. Second, we need to understand what our temptation and struggle is when suffering arises. And that's our next point. Our struggle in suffering. Look at verses 14 and 15, Philippians 2. This is our struggle when suffering takes place. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Okay, I'm going to give the ladies a moment here, guys, so just bear with me. Um, ladies, we're going to do another show of hands. Um, my wife tells me every time that I'm sick with just a, a basic cold that I'm an absolute wuss. Um, I hear that's a common thing among men, so we're just going to do a show of hands. Who here thinks, women, that you're tougher than your husbands and the men in your life when a, a sickness or a common cold arises? Let's just see if we can have consensus here. It's a fairly good consensus. Um, men, now it's your turn. I want to just give you a little response to that. My wife totally knows it's coming, and she is not happy about it. This is all you got to say, men, if your wife says, man, you're just being a wuss when you're sick. You just say this. During labor, the pain is so great that a woman can almost imagine what a man feels like when he has a fever. <laughs> That's true, you guys. That's true. Just quote that. That's the only thing you guys are going to remember from this sermon. Okay. <laughs> the point of this is not be, uh, be tougher in suffering. The point of these verses is, is focus on our response when we suffer. How do we respond when we suffer? Paul exhorts us that in all things, in all things, we should face them without grumbling or disputing. Okay? This term grumbling literally means an utterance in a low tone of voice. Okay? It's like murmurings. It's typically because of, of discontentment and dissatisfaction. That's what it's about. It's behind-the-scenes talk. It's just grumbling. It, it includes these negative components of complaint, displeasure, expressed in murmurings. Right? That's what this is talking about, grumbling. The term disputing means this disagreement that leads to arguing, right? So what's being said here is we're told that in all things, we're not to grumble in discontentment or dissatisfaction by complaining or expressing displeasure with our circumstances. And we're not to argue about our circumstances. Or another way of saying this is that we should not attempt to make an argument for why we believe we do not deserve the circumstances that we are in. Right? Now, this is the way I see it. You can grumble and dispute to three parties. To ourselves, to others, and to God. That's how this works. To ourselves, to others, and to God. When faced with something, some circumstance in your life that you do not enjoy, we can murmur and complain with our own spirit, even when no one can hear, right? Oh, I, I don't deserve this. I can't believe they said that to me. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have to put up with this. You, you, can, you can just, you all know what I'm talking about, right? You can complain to yourselves thinking that you deserve something different than what is given to you, and so you murmur and complain to yourselves. We can also complain to others, right? When we 
have the ear of someone we trust or even just a complete stranger, right? It doesn't even have to be someone we trust. We can easily justify ourselves and make a case for whatever is going on for you is unjust and undeserved. You should have more. You should be more. Be given more respect. And then you take it upon yourself to state your case before others in an attitude of grumbling and complaining, disputing. And lastly, we can murmur and grumble and complain and argue with God. And I, I believe that that's the real thrust of what Paul is saying here. When we're in the midst of difficult circumstances, loss, pain, hardship, suffering, we can take this posture towards God that tells him that we know better than him. And murmur and complain against him that he must have made a mistake how dare he allow this circumstance to happen in my life? And Paul says that we are to avoid this behavior in all circumstances. All is a fairly inclusive word, if you don't know. It means all, okay? Do not grumble or argue about your circumstances when things are going well. We do that sometimes. Do not grumble or argue when things are going just okay. Do not grumble or argue when things are a challenge for you and your family. Do not grumble or argue when things are straight up bad in your life. That means all. In the midst of a slight annoyance, do not complain or argue. And in the midst of a full-on suffering moment, do not complain or argue with yourself, with others, or with God that you should not be in that circumstance. So right now we know, we know two things. We know that we are going to suffer and that we will share in suffering in the same way as the world. We'll feel the same pain, the same loss, the same hurt. And we know too that the way in which we deal with our suffering should be different from the world. We, unlike the world, should not grumble and dispute when circumstances of suffering come into our lives. All right? Paul says as much in the verses, and I'll read it again so you can hear it, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, different than everybody else, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In the world, in the midst of, in the midst of suffering, the world, when they suffer, anger grows in their hearts. Their response to others and to God is one of, of anger and hatred. When a loved one dies, the world says, God, how could you take them? When disaster strikes, uh, an unbeliever says, God, how could you have allowed this to happen? The world blames God for the effects of sin in their lives. Because unlike us as believers, they do not understand that God in his mercy and grace has made a provision to deal with the cause of suffering, to deal with sin. As children of God, we know this and we should not act like the world. We must be different in the midst of the world. When the world is plunged into darkness, we shine bright. Not because we're so great, but because we know the light of the world. This light always outshines the darkness, even when everything seems black. So why? Why should we do things differently? Why should we respond differently? Why should we be different, shine different, live differently in the midst of 
darkness and suffering and pain. Well, for one, as it says in verse 13, God is sovereignly in control of our biggest disasters, of our greatest suffering over our darkest moments. He doesn't cause them. Sin causes them, but he allows them to happen. And he is sovereignly over control of those. So why should we respond like the word when we know that God is in control? In verse 13 it says, For it is God who is at work with you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why should we be different when we suffer? Because we have a provision of strength in the midst of suffering that no one else has. Which leads us to our next point. Our strength in suffering. What is our strength in the midst of suffering? Take a look at verses 14 through 16 with me. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We are told what not to do. That's what not to do, okay? Verse 15 tells us why we need to do it. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights of the world. And in verse 16, we're told how we are to do it by holding fast to the word of life. As believers, we are told how we are to endure suffering differently than the rest of the world, and that's because we have Jesus. We, knew, we know that the trials and sufferings of this world are passing and momentary, and that our real life, our real blessedness, our real complete joy awaits us in the life to come. We know that in Christ we will have ultimate victory over sin and its consequences. We know that God can use suffering to produce a result in us that will make us more like Christ. We know that all of this flows out of the life that we have in Jesus, the word of life. I want you guys to listen, just, just to listen. I'm not going to have you turn there or look on the screen. I want you to listen to this handful of verses that I'm going to read. Okay? Just listen carefully. However is best for you to listen, do that. Romans 5, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. 1 Peter 5 says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its result, has its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. This is from Jesus' own mouth, from John 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Revelation 21, at the end of all things, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. 
First Peter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 2 Corinthians we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. And then in Philippians, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Church, Christ is our strength in the midst of suffering. Yes, we will share in suffering the same way that the world does, but our behavior and our attitude should be different. We do not grumble or complain or argue because we have Jesus. We have hope in him, life in him, joy and peace, and our strength is found in him and him alone. Yes, we are afflicted by sin in this life, but in Christ we know that we have ultimate victory over it. So we endure it, we persevere in it without grumbling or disputing, and we have a different response than the world in the midst of it. And what is that response? That's the last point, our spirit in suffering. Instead of grumbling and disputing when something happens to us that's, that's out of our control, that appears as suffering, we are to rejoice. Look at verses 17 and 18 as we close up here. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul is being poured out and burnt up. And in the midst of all that, he says, I rejoice. And he commands us to rejoice in the same way. When we face suffering and trial and hardship on account of Christ, we can rejoice. Church, we need to be obedient. God has saved us, redeemed us, restored us to Christ. We are made new in him. He is at work in us. And so we must respond in obedience to him in all circumstances. He is sovereign in all circumstances working in things for his glory, working in all things for his glory and honor. That includes good things and the bad things. Suffering will come. Pain is inevitable, but we need not grumble or argue with one another or with God because we have Christ. Instead, we're to hold fast to him, to cling to him, to abide in him, to find rest, peace, contentment, hope, and joy in him. Because of Christ, we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Yes, we will share in suffering. Yes, we will struggle. But in Christ, who is our strength, we can cling to him. And that should change our spirit from one of complaining to one of joy. Because we know we have hope in Christ. 
He calls this, count it all joy. Consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In the world we will have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. For it has been granted to you and to me for Christ's sake that we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Church, beloved, do not be surprised when trials come into your life to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. We will share in suffering, we will struggle, but we have a different strength and should respond in a different spirit because of what God has done for us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we uh, give you all the praise and glory. Uh, we want to be obedient uh, to this word that you've given us today from Philippians, Lord, uh, that we should not be people who grumble or complain when suffering and trial comes, Lord, but we should give you all the honor and praise and glory due to your name and enjoy, respond. Father, give us the strength to do so as we cling to Christ. Help us every moment to cling to him as our strength and our hope and our peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.